all systems failure. Launching life pod. Navigating to nearest habitable planet. Life support online. Rations check complete. Entertainment capacity critical. Please select shortlist. Hello and welcome to Remote Outpost Games, our new interview show which may bear a passing similarity to a popular tropical island themed musical selection show. Our guests are stranded on a remote outpost far from the Galnet comms channels and with no immediate hope of rescue. We ask them to pick five games they couldn't live without if they were put in this situation. Since we're Lave Radio, every outcast already gets a lifetime subscription to Elite Dangerous and a Game Boy copy of Tetris. Every other choice is up to them. Tonight we're joined by Ivan Maltini, a uh, PR and community manager for Daylight Studios, the developer responsible for the Holy Potato series, uh, including, to date, Holy Potatoes, a weapon shop, and Holy Potatoes, we're in space. Hello Ivan, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you guys for having me. I'm Ivan, I'm from Italy, but I pretty much grew up uh, my entire life here in Singapore, and I studied a bit in Melbourne and Wollongong as well in Australia, and uh, I just happened to fall into the video games industry with uh, Daylight Studios and you know, I've been working there for about two years now and uh, pretty much joined just when Holy Potatoes a Weapon Shop released and then I was there for the whole production cycle of Holy Potatoes We're in Space and now we're working on Holy Potatoes What the Hell. Weird. Tell us a bit about the, the the potato series. I mean, how did that? It's obviously an original <laughs> IP that you guys have created. It's perhaps a slightly unusual concept, the idea of characters who are essentially cartoon potatoes. And obviously, the series itself. There's there's two games already, and you're working on a third. And gameplay wise, they are very different games. So, what's the sort of inspiration behind the the sort of potatoes IP? Where did it come from? Uh, and how did you end up working on it? So at the beginning, what was happening was the first four years of Daylight Studios, we were just making mobile games. And then we thought, you know, we should think about switching over to PC. So what happened was that we've always wanted to make a management sim. And we took a lot of inspiration from like Receteer and Game Dev Story and stuff like that. We didn't really know what direction the art was going to go into. And we dabbled a lot in like pixel art and 3D and all sorts of stuff. And one day our art director just drew kind of like a naked potato dancing. And we just all thought it was so <laughs> hilarious that we were just like, we just got to go with this and we just kept the potatoes. And the rest of the game pretty much wrote itself because it was so easy coming up with like puns and, you know, pop culture references and just turning real people into potatoes and stuff like that. So that's pretty much where the Holy Potatoes IP started. And I'm also joined tonight uh, by fellow host of Remote Outpost Games and Lay Radio, John Stabler. John, how are you? Yeah, yeah, good. Glad to be here. I wanted to bring John in at this point because one of the things that, that interested me about your design process, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, is you were just talking there about how you created a management game, but actually the, the not only the art style, but actually in some respects from what you're saying, the presentation style between whether it be 2D or 3D, very much divorced. I mean, is that the process for all of designing the, the, the games, is that the, the mechanics are designed and then you just work out how to skin it and represent it as graphics? Is that, is that generally the design approach for you guys? Well, at the beginning for uh, a weapon shop, it was because, again, we had never really done a PC game before. 
And um, initially, actually, we were going to make a weapon shop as a mobile game, but then we decided against it and went for PC. And that was the only time where we were like, what should we do with the art? But ever since then, you know, we're just like, we're sticking true to the Holy Potatoes IP because we really want to expand it. So right now, it's just like, we've got our art in check and kind of uh, how we want to represent our games, visually, of course. But yeah, it was only really with the first game. Now it's just like, we already know kind of what the game is going to look like. It's just a matter of, you know, coming up with concept art for the potatoes and the backgrounds and environments and stuff like that. I was lucky enough, I think either this week or last week in the, the Discord channel for, for Holy Potatoes, there was a, a prototype of Holy Potatoes, What the Hell, yep. which is really just, I mean, there's no graphics on it. It is literally just black and white text boxes and you're kind of clicking buttons from one to another. And obviously that's waiting to be kind of skinned. So that's, yeah, very much kind of divorcing. Because I think a lot of indie designers, when they come to a game, already sort of have in mind a visual interface I don't know, I saw like an early prototype for Braid. And even though obviously Braid, after it was designed in terms of the mechanics, was obviously reskinned with better art. But actually in the, in the sense of the kind of the proportions of the game and essentially how it was going to play, that was there in the very early prototype. Well, I find it really interesting that you actually have the kind of the mechanics of the game kind of very divorced from... Yeah, the look of the game and everything like that. But that's the thing, it's just like, for, for one, this is a super, super early prototype, the one that you were able to play. And secondly, it's just, we, it's weird, for this game, we knew exactly what we wanted the mechanics to be like, so the programmers went straight into making a prototype so that we can, you know, all kind of in the office play it, and then, beautiful thing about the Discord is that, you know, we were able to kind of export a build from Unity and get, you know, everyone on our Discord to try it out as well, because what we want to do is we want to get this game completely right, you know? Um, a weapon shop, it was just a stab in the dark, like, let's hope this works, or let's hope it sticks <laughs> to the wall. And uh, with We're in Space, you know, we, we made a lot of mistakes with the first, so um, we were lucky that we learned from the first game. Um, and we also generally already had an idea for that. But for the third, we just really kind of want to make it very community-driven. And, um, you know, we've learned a lot from our first two games, and we're just thinking, like, let's take a lot of input from the players instead of just us you know, trying things on our end, seeing what works and doesn't work, and let's just see what people think works or doesn't work, and let's see how this game turns out. You know, so even though, you know, we already have two games under our belt, we just kind of want to dabble with trying something not really completely different, but completely different for us, where it's kind of like we're doing everything backwards. So we'll see how that goes, really. Yeah, I was talking to Chris about this before we started recording, and yeah. as a developer, I, I found it quite interesting. I didn't actually play the Weapon Shop game, but I watched a YouTube yep. video to get a feel, and I just watched it, and I was like, oh, this... Uh, and I don't mean it as pejorative, but I, I could see that it was a game on top of a spreadsheet in, in a way. Yep. I mean, in, in technically, all games are something on top of a spreadsheet, if you think about it. Sure, sure. But... Um, you know, I could see that, and I th and but the thing is, is it like a lot of people just love that. I mean, yeah. we, you have Eve Online, which again is yep. another spreadsheet and things, and people just sure. love seeing numbers getting bigger. It's a great yeah. psychological effect. I can I could see where the games had evolved because obviously, then you know, in space there was a lot less of that obvious kind of spreadsheetiness about it. You know, there's yeah. a lot more to do, and uh, but then it's it's great to hear that Chris saying playing the prototype, you know you've got this kind of engine underneath and yeah. does does this have anything to do with the fact that you're a mo you know you come from a mobile game studio kind of origins that you know you can create an engine but then you yeah. could in theory reskin it to look like anything 
Yeah, sure. I mean, definitely. I mean, as I said, you know, we, we worked on mobile games for four years and stuff. So that is pretty much ingrained in us now. With a weapon shop, you're completely right in saying that it's just a spreadsheet with graphics on top of it. I mean, I remember seeing the CSV for that and it's just like thousands and thousands of cells, you know, for all the balancing and all the numbers and stuff and just formulas upon formulas for balancing and just like the progression of experience and, you know, numbers and stuff like that. But for We're in Space, we did it completely differently because we hired a scriptwriter. And this game, even though a weapon shop was very story driven, We're in Space is even more so. I mean, I think at the end of it all, we had 160,000 words in the game. And it was very much like everything was built upon the story instead of built upon kind of like the CSV or, the, you know, the Excel spreadsheets and stuff like that. So it's they, all three games are so different to each other, but have very similar feelings because we're taking elements from all of them and you know kind of like putting them in all other games and stuff like that i mean yeah i mean holy potatoes we're in space does have a huge amount of content i've been doing yeah. some i've been doing some streaming of it on my on my personal stream twitch.tv forward slash hold my kidney I'll, I'll get the plug in now i think actually one of the reasons that my, my viewers have liked that is because i you know in my kind of other guys i do audio drama and i do kind of voice acting and i kind okay. of i kind of read all the encounters and do, do the voices so i think that's one of the things right. my viewers liked is you've got all this really effective and really funny and really intricate writing because if you just kind of you know if you click if you just click through holy potatoes were in space you actually kind of miss a lot of the fun of it i love the doctor who references i love the pokemon references the kind of spoof that's in there it's full of character and there is the sort of quality of it just kind of pours out it's just strange that like for the for we're in space um there's so much more content yet the gameplay i think like a playthrough you could probably finish it between eight and twelve hours whereas for a weapon shop it takes around like 30 to 40 hours to finish and yet there's just so many more words in the second one so i mean i I don't even know how we pulled it off it just doesn't make sense (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we get too far away from the concept of spreadsheets and ever-increasing numbers, I think we should yeah. go to the first game. The first game is kind of that in itself, yeah. isn't it? And your first sure. pick is World of Warcraft. Drink, Hellstream. Claim your destiny. You will all be conquerors. Then what, Gul'dan? must we give in return? Everything. Now, I think that would make a lot of people's lists. I'm surprised it's taken this long to get around to someone who's, who's going to nominate it. So it's a massive, massively multiplayer online fantasy um, yep. for those who don't know what it is. What's your favorite aspect of it? Why did you play it? Do you still play it? Well, that's the thing. So with World of Warcraft, it came out so long ago. And I remember the first time I heard about it, my brother was playing it. I came home from school one time and I was like, what game is this? And he's like, oh, it's World of Warcraft. I think at the time he must have been like 12 or something. And he was just like, oh, it's World of Warcraft. Check this out. I have my own house and like I have parents and they gave me a bed, which I now realize what he meant was he was just at the inn and you can like sleep on the bed. And he was just I don't know why, but that sounded so like fascinating to me. So I was like, I have to get this game. And uh, ever since then, you know, the part that I loved back then was playing with all my friends because we all got it. We would literally wake up, go to school, come home and just play for hours. But nowadays, I just like it more for just like because before, you know, I was just playing games for the fun of it. But now, because I work in video games, there's so much that I've seen behind the 
behind closed doors that I never knew existed, that I just find it so amazing that they were able to create such a massive world with all these crazy, intricate, linked quests that the balancing must be insane and everything. So I think now it fascinates me more for that and for just how they built the universe. And then also, it's just so pretty. I mean, you know, if you start off as a tourney on the Horde, you know, start off in Mulgore and it's just so nice and it's just so relaxing. It just takes you away from all the stresses of life. That's really interesting because I, I, I personally never played WoW. And obviously a lot of the videos that I've seen of it tend to be these huge kind of raids and massive battles. So it's really interesting to hear you kind of describe it as a relaxing game. I mean, is that because you you choose to do some of the non-combat stuff, like just exploring the world? Or is it just because you do find the kind of the flow of the combat a relaxing way to play games? I kind of stopped playing World of Warcraft. Um, I mean, I played Warlords of Draenor, which was the expansion before the most recent one. I think it was called Legion or whatnot. That one was great because I already had a max level character. And then so I got to, I think, level 100 was the max fairly quickly. So I could get into raiding, which I had never done before. And I found that really fun. But the only thing with raiding is that you need to be in a guild and you need to have tons of people that are ready to be there. And you have to have like, okay, you need a main tank and an off tank. You need healers, you need DPS. You need to go on like Discord or IRC or what, whatever it was called and TeamSpeak or whatnot. And, you know, it, it's really an orchestrated event, which just takes a lot of effort. And if you don't know the people, then it just makes it really difficult. Whereas, you know, if you just go on and kind of treat it like a single player game, anyone can do it. So I just enjoy it for what it is, just me going around playing and stuff. And I do have another friend that plays now. So once in a while we'll play together. But most of it, I just treat it like a single player game. And I just go around just doing quests and stuff like that and exploring. It's one of those games that as time goes on and it gets expanded, it becomes less and less friendly to new players. In that to get to what I call the real content, you've got to spend... I mean, I couldn't even imagine how months it would take if you only exactly. spent a few hours a night to get to max level. And I think Blizzard let you buy a, a high-level character now, don't they? So you can skip all that stuff. But I think when I got Warlords of Draenor, they kind of they give you a max level character. The problem with that then, and and it was a problem before anyway, on these these servers which were quite mature in their population, that you yeah. had huge sections of the game where it was just devoid of players. It was empty yeah, because yeah. they'd all moved on to the high-end zones and all exactly, these fantastic exactly. places that yeah. were created. No exactly. one's going there anymore. This is the thing. So with the choice of World of Warcraft, um, uh, I didn't really specify, but the thing is, um, have you guys heard of the Elysium Project? No. Okay, so the way that the Elysium Project work is that, so you've got World of Warcraft, what it is now, with all the expansions and everything. Some people banded together, and what they did was is that they opened up their own private servers for just vanilla WoW, like what it was back in the glory days, you know, with the High Warlord set and everything. And uh, if I were to pick this game, I would pick to play on the Elysium Project servers because it go, it takes you right back to how I felt, you know, when I was like 13, 14 or 15 playing with my friends. And it's a completely different game to what it is now. And it was just so well balanced back then. It was a lot harder than it is now. So that that would actually be my choice, not for what the game is now. But I do have a question. Do we get internet access when we're stuck in space with these games? <laughs> yes, you do. Yeah, I think we're just assuming that well, whatever game you choose works. <laughs> you know, I never played Vanilla WoW because I think I started playing not long after um, the first expansion. And it was only after the Lich came they started to simplify stuff. Because obviously in Vanilla yeah. WoW, you wanted to go and do a high-level dungeon or something like that. You'd yeah. have to grind as a, like a raid group. For stuff like frost yeah. protection, just so you could yeah, fight one boss and survive him, you would yeah, need. Yeah, it's nuts. Some people love that hardcore. 
but then again, it's all the end content where you where you're doing stuff like that anyway. Yeah, and that's the thing. It just makes it so hard because a lot of most of the game starts when you reach max level. So if you don't have other people to play with, then it just becomes really difficult to kind of see all this content. So that's really why I picked vanilla World of Warcraft because it's just so beautiful. The journey from one to sixty and getting through everything, and then you know reaching level forty, so you get your mount, and then reaching sixty and getting your epic mount. And I remember back then it was so difficult for me to get a hundred gold that. I had to call my friend up and be like, dude, could I please borrow 100 gold? I promise I'll pay you back. I just want my mount. And, uh, you know, nowadays with the new WoW, it's so different. Like, you get 1,000 gold in a couple of hours or something. So it doesn't have that feel that it had back then. And it's, it's nice to actually have a guest on, like, particularly for this show, who's picked World of Warcraft. Because um, just as a side note, we are only, well, at the point of recording this, we are only a couple of weeks after the 10-year anniversary of Leroy Jenkins. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we're going to need divine intervention on our mages, uh, so they can uh, AE, uh, so we can, of course, get them down fast, because we're bringing all these guys. I mean, we'll be in trouble if we don't take them down quick. Uh, I think it's a pretty good plan. We should be able to pull it off this time. Uh, what do you think, Abdul? Can you give me a number crunch real quick? Uh, yeah, give me a sec. I'm coming up with 32.33, uh, repeating, of course, percentage of survival. Well, that's a lot better than we usually do. Uh, All right, thumbs up. Ready, guys? Let's or? do this. Leroy Jenkins! Oh, my God, he just ran in. Save him. Oh, geez, stick it clean. Oh, Jesus. Let's go, let's go. It's amazing to think that 10 years has passed since that seminal video. Certainly for someone like me, who's very much an outsider, if you say World of Warcraft to me, Leroy Jenkins is probably the first thing <laughs> that I kind of think of. Right? Yeah. I know people who got into it because of watching Leroy Jenkins on YouTube yeah, yeah. and and watching uh can you remember I can't remember who it was the funeral that was oh my party God, crashed by the whole about that yeah 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 and all that kind of stuff and it just goes to show how rich the world is and also you know the role playing that happens with the players and stuff like that how fascinating it is and people just join the game simply for that and then they ended up hating pickup groups and stuff like that. <laughs> You've kind of said yourself in terms of the content, I mean, something like WoW is, is is beyond the dreams of a small studio, but obviously, you know, Holy Potatoes We're in Space has a huge amount of content. But I mean, how big how big is Daylight? And I know you've said to me previously that even being a kind of PR and community manager and not someone from a game development background, you do sometimes get involved in, in a bit of the development. So, I mean, how big is the studio and what kind of development do you get to do? There are... Ten, around 10 of us for on the development team. So we have four artists, we have two programmers, four artists, you have me, then you have our producer, and you have one game designer. So there's around 10 of us. So it's really not that big. And the thing is, since we're doing a couple of things at the same time right now, we're coming out with a DLC for We're in Space, and we're also working on What the Hell. So we kind of have to, you know, carefully delegate um, between, you know, do we who do we want to work on the DLC and who do we want to work on the new game and stuff like that. So it gets pretty difficult because since our resources are so limited, you know, once in a while we have to get interns to come in and stuff from the universities here in Singapore to just be like, um, you know, could you just help us just on this aspect? Like, for instance, we're also porting, we're in space to the Nintendo Switch. So right now we have this amazing, like, intern doing programming. And right now she's actually porting a weapon shop to mobile and tablets. And then I'm pretty sure we're going to get her to just focus on porting We're in Space to the Nintendo Switch, whereas our two, you know, lead programmers, they're going to be working on what the hell and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, we're a small team and it's just difficult to 
get all these things done at once but you know we really do want to get all these things out because we have so many ideas for you know the holy potatoes ip and everything your second choice uh, on the list is another huge role-playing game uh, also by blizzard uh, you've chosen diablo 2 my days at the Rogue Citadel seemed so long ago. I sought refuge from my memories in the company of other outcasts high in the mountains past the Eastern Gate. I love Diablo 2. And, and Diablo 2 goes back a bit. Players who talk about it talk about it with a lot of reverence. What was the standout thing of Diablo 2 for you? Honestly, for me... The thing that impresses me the most about Diablo 2 is the fact that it stood its test of time. I mean, it came out, what, 17 years ago? And a couple of friends and I are still playing it today. And the thing is, Diablo 2 is not... It's a huge game, of course, but playing it from the beginning to the end doesn't take that long. Oh, and by the way, when I say Diablo 2, I mean Lord of Destruction. So the expansion, which doesn't... Yeah, it doesn't add much to the game. But I think with the expansion, they just added, I think, what, the Necromancer and the Assassin... But yeah, just the fact that, you know, we're still playing it today and just that it's just you can't get bored. I mean, we play it, sure, for like maybe like intensively for a month and then we don't play it as much later on. But as soon as the ladder resets, we're like, yo, let's jump right back on and stuff like that. So I don't know how they did it, but it's just it's just a game that you could you could literally play for the rest of your life. Well, I've been trapped on an island. You know, you might get that choice. Yeah. But I'm just... So why not... Uh, I mean, have you played Diablo 3? Would you not want to move yeah. on to that? Well, the thing is, my girlfriend and I are playing Diablo 3, and it's a great game. But as I said, it's just... It's it's not like Diablo 2 in the sense of... I don't know. It's just Diablo 2 has its charm, and its characters are amazing, like Deckard Kane and Akala in Act 1. And then you have Tyrael, and just the bosses as well, you know, and Daryl Duriel... I don't know, there's just something about it that just really just speaks for itself. Even though the graphics are dated, I mean, it did come out almost two decades ago. They're just like, I don't know, I find the game so beautiful as well. And just it's so perfectly balanced. Like you don't, you never feel too overpowered, but you also don't really ever feel like you're not strong enough. As long as you're conscious about what items you pick up and, you know, kind of tweaking your build and everything like that. So I, I just hats off to Blizzard for that game. It's just an amazing game. And. Sure, I'm a Blizzard fanboy. I mean, I was really torn between, you know, picking StarCraft 2 or Diablo 2. But, you know, I went with Diablo 2 just for the fact that Diablo 2 is so replayable as well. You know, you could just go through as an Amazon, let's just say, and it's like, okay, I'll just use bows here and be a Boazon. Or I'll do it again, but I'll be a Javazon this time. Or I'll just go with a Valkyrie the third time. And you can do that with every single character. And then I also picked to have the mods if that is all right yeah i was going to ask about that you've said that uh, you, you play the game with a couple of key mods so you've specifically listed a mod called jamelas and median xl so what do those two add to the game and why are they so important to you for this diablo 2 experience jamelas is actually an item and character editor so what happens is you can go in you can grab a character make it as strong as you want and then kind of make your own item. So what you do is you grab, let's say, an empty sword, and then I can just put stats onto it. Just be like, okay, I can add extreme damage to this, and I can put fire damage and cold damage, blah, 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 and you can make your own items. And that's just really fun, you know? And the reason why I picked Jamelas is just because, you know, let's say I'm stranded for 10 years. I need some kind of freshness to the games that I've picked. And so Jamelas basically enables me to play single player and just edit my character so I can get to level 99 straight away, 
and then just make my own character, uh, make my own items. And then I can do all the things like Uber runs and get keys and do like, you know, magic finding and stuff like that. Median Excel, on the other hand, that's a proper, proper mod. And the way that that works is no joke. It just makes it a completely different game. Like it's not Diablo 2 anymore. Sure, it's the same graphics and it's within Diablo. But funny enough, I think I saw on Kotaku one or two days ago that Median Excel was just updated to increase your maximum level to 125 and they've added a bunch of different things and it's it's a completely different game i mean i don't do it any justice explaining it but let's say for instance you grab a sorceress where in the original lord of destruction you know you're just going around you know either doing fire lightning or cold damage but when you play in median excel i think sorceresses where use bows or something they made their own levels in it as well and put in their own monsters and stuff it's just such an amazing mod so it just keeps the game fresh, really. Is modding something that's important to you in games as a player and a designer? I mean, is that something that the Daylight Studios would want to have in their games is to enable modding? And is modding harder for a small studio or is it easier because the community are bringing kind of content to you? With modding, the only mod I've ever really used is Median Excel. But in regards to our own games, we've never, we've never actually even had this discussion. I mean, I wouldn't even know how modding would work in our games. I mean, what would we let them make their own characters or make their own levels and stuff like that? So that's the thing. I mean, I, I think it would be really interesting. I'm definitely going to go back to work on Monday and, you know, talk to our producer and be like, hey, have we ever thought about modding? And just kind of see what his response is, because that would be super interesting just to see what people can do with the game and stuff like that. So. Yeah, definitely for something like, I mean, like even like a simple thing, like something like um, Holy Potatoes, We're in Space, because your encounters are so kind of text driven and it's kind of based on choices and there are kind of chances of rewards, it would be, it'd be really interesting to see how a community would kind of add to the pool of random encounters. Sure, definitely. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. They could definitely add more encounters. They could definitely add like ship skins and stuff like that, which we're actually doing for the DLC. It's coming up as a free update at the same time as the DLC, but we're adding so that you can customize the look of your ship on the exterior and interior and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, definitely people could, yeah, they could work on that. They could work on adding, you know, different enemies as well or weapons. So it's definitely interesting and I'll definitely bring it up to see if we could work on something. So coming on to your third choice. Now, your third choice took me a bit, yeah. <laughs> a little bit by surprise. It was really something that I kind <laughs> of didn't expect to see. I mean, obviously, Diablo 2 kind of goes back a bit, but I mean, this game really does take me back a few years. Uh, you have chosen PlayStation 1 light game, Point Blank 2. That game, it's, a, it's an interesting game. The, the reason why I picked that one was just because I, I think I must have had a dream about it last week or something because I woke up just being like, oh my God, whatever happened to that game? And have, I know, I think they made a port over to PlayStation 2 and 3 or something, but not for PlayStation 4. And I just haven't seen a game like that in ages. And I haven't stepped inside an arcade for a while either. So I was just like, God, that would be so much fun to play again because I remember my brother and I, we had the light guns and we must have played hours upon hours of that game. And there was like this game mode in it where kind of like an endless mode and your little character goes into this totem pole or like this huge tower or something. And every level of the tower is a level that you have to play and you only have three lives. 
And once your three lives are gone, that's it. It's game over. And I think I only ever got to level 40. And I'd like to see what happens, like if there is an end to it and stuff. And I remember being so extremely difficult that I was like, I'm pretty sure I could spend a year just playing that game. So how does it work? I mean, is it because it's because it's a light gun game? I mean, is your progress determined by keeping up a certain rate of accuracy or are you taking damage as a player? So it's nothing like Time Crisis or whatnot, right? Where you're just sitting there and you're shooting at enemies and enemies shoot back at you. Point Blank is really, it's like a digital version of going to a carnival and doing carnival games. The first level is like, okay, these red targets are going to appear on your screen. You have to shoot the red ones, but don't shoot the blue ones or the bombs. And if you do that, then you lose a life. So it's really kind of like a carnival game in a digital environment. Well, because yeah. I've only played Time Crisis, and I think you're yeah. the same, aren't you, uh, Chris? I had uh, PlayStation 1. I had the, I think, the Scorpion light gun, and I got myself oh, a nice. copy of Time Crisis at home. And I reckoned, I mean, it was quite expensive at the time. I think it cost me something like, between the game and the gun, I think I spent maybe 30, 35 pounds, which, which when I was a student felt like a lot. But I think I right. must have saved myself 100 quid or so just from putting pound coins into the time crisis game at the pub. Do you, I mean, you, you sort of mentioned that, that Point Blank 2 has been sort of ported to the PlayStation 2 and 3. I mean, I've not seen a light gun peripheral for a long time. Do you still have a machine that you, that you could play to Point Blank 2 on? Or is it this more no. aspirational choice? Yeah, this is the thing. Like when when I you know I was at work, I was talking to Coco, our concept artist and stuff, and I asked him if he'd ever played the game, and I showed it to him, and I was like, I was like, damn, I really want to get it. You know, if anything, I have a PlayStation Two and Three lying around somewhere. I can just you know buy the ported versions, buy a light gun, which I'm sure shouldn't be too much nowadays, and then play it. But then I heard people were saying like it doesn't work unless you have like the old school TVs, like the CRT or CVT TVs, whatever they're called. And I was just like oh no, what am I going to do? So I actually started researching on buying just the old school arcade machine. Like That's how much I wanted to play the game. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, with the scanline technology of the old guns, it's a, yeah. if you know how it works, I mean, it's, it's like a really simple way of getting pixel-perfect accuracy from a yeah. really simple peripheral. These days, there's not anything really equivalent to that. I mean, you've got stuff like uh, the Wii Mote controllers yeah. and like the, the Sony, um, what was it? PlayStation Move and stuff like that, but they work kind of differently, and then they don't feel as accurate. So yeah, in, in a way, a lot of those games have kind of disappeared, and they're only in the arcade. Bit of a shame, really. No, I, I really do miss those kinds of games. They're really fun, and just going down playing with friends, you know, is always great fun. Yeah, I mean, I mean, do you think that kind of with the current sort of gaming culture around? Uh, sort of, I guess, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and, and the kind of current PC thing. Is modern gaming lacking that that kind of fun entertainment? I mean, obviously, Nintendo are still doing stuff with like uh, with the Switch, and particularly with games like 1-2 Switch, where you've got this concept of kind of pulling a gun like a cowboy and shooting or, or milking a cow. But, I mean, it's yeah, yeah. is it is it something that you think gaming's kind of left behind? It's just that fun of just kind of having a light gun and blasting at the screen? The thing is, games nowadays, I think on average, games nowadays are a lot more fun. They're a lot more entertaining. They're a lot more immersive. Um, the thing is, they're just fun in different ways. Back then, it was fun because, you know, the internet wasn't that completely ingrained. And not everyone had either a desktop or a laptop at home. So really, what your only choices were either to go down to an arcade and play with your friends, or you go down... Um, I mean, I don't know how it is 
in the UK, but here in Singapore and other parts of Asia, a big thing here is going to land shops. So you just go down, you're paying one or two dollars an hour and they have like hundreds of computers. You go down with like 12 friends and you sit there playing CS or, you know, Battlefield or Warcraft 3 and stuff like that. Um, so the thing is, is that you're missing that feeling of playing with a big group of people in person. But now it's just because everyone's at home. They have, you know, pretty good machines. They have fast internet. Everyone just sits at home and plays with their friends. So it doesn't really feel the same, sure. But it's definitely fun nowadays, too, where it's just like, you know, you can really get super immersed in the game and you're comfortable at home. And so I think it's just shifted over and it just feels different. But I think it's it's just it works. It still definitely works. I mean, you know, the video game industry is booming and you have so many more players now. And I think... Well, on Steam, there are like hundreds of millions of users or something, if I'm not mistaken. And so definitely something is has been done right. It's just it, it's just not what it was like, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting to hear about the, the this concept of the land shops, because that's not really something I can't speak for Europe. But it's certainly something we don't have in the UK. I mean, we have a yeah. sort of tradition of uh, land parties where people right, will right. take their PC and their rig and they'll go somewhere and they'll kind of plug in they'll plug in for a weekend but i mean that's kind of that's very much died out over here since the availability yeah. of kind of high-speed broadband i mean i still go to land parties because i have a, I have a, there's a fantastic group of people who still get together right. you know to have land parties just for the kind of the, the social fun of it but it's definitely a it's definitely a sad thing that's kind of again that sort of died out a little bit do they still have dreamhack going on because i remember I dreamhack no was what that massive land party that they had in sweden i think it was I remember seeing it maybe in like 2008 or something and just being like, one day we have to go there. It looks amazing. But now thinking about it, it's just like, is it still on? Because, you know, I as think you said, it's still you know, going. It is. I've just, I've just Googled it and there is uh, scheduled for a couple of weeks time, although <laughs> depending on when this podcast comes out, it may have been and gone. Uh, Dreamhack Summer 17, 2017 is uh, June 17th to June 20th in Sweden. There is Dreamhack okay. Atlanta in July. Oh, wow. Dreamhack Masters in Malmo uh, in September in Sweden again, and Dreamhack Denver in October in Denver, Colorado. So they're obviously still. And we do have things like, I mean, we have things like, uh, what's the one uh, locally to here? There's things like Insomnia, I think has a huge land. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and we do, I mean, like, we've got our own convention, LaveCon, coming up in a few weeks. We have a land room. Uh, and do people have to bring their own computers, or is it just like computers and PCs are provided? I think people bring their own because people love their own PC. It's like a member yes. of their family. And so, you know, they, they want it. It's a, it's a talking point as well. You get to talk about your rig and what you've done to it and stuff like That's that. That's true. Yeah. I didn't think about that. That's true. Yeah. I've never been to one of these massive land things before. Just looking Crazy. at the pictures, there's a lot of people in there with a lot of CPUs pumping out heat. And I'm wondering, I hope oh, they all bring so deodorant <laughs> with them. Having been to land parties, they definitely don't. I mean, the ones I'm used to are a bit more small scale. I mean, Fragland is 20 to 30 of us in like a village hall. And thankfully, it's an unheated village hall. And it does generally end up being sort of in the colder months of the year. So we do cope a little bit. Moving on, game number four is a hugely popular game. A much more recent game, some of the other choices. And one which I confess, I have still not played this. Uh, so Driving Meets Football in Rocket League. I've sunk so many hours in the past, probably like three months. And uh, I could honestly just, 
I don't know, let's say, so how long are we supposed to be stranded for, by the way? Is this like an indeterminate amount of time or is it like 10 years, five years, or you're just literally waiting? It's the uh, end of your uh, life. <laughs> I don't know. Until you it's, die. Yeah, it's, a, it's until rescue. It's something like, you know, I don't know, somewhere, somewhere between the Martian and that guy in Interstellar that ends up on the ship on his own for 30 years or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So that's the thing with Rocket League. Like I've seen, I've put so many hours into it and I'm still so bad. I'm just like, <laughs> what do I have to do? Right. So I would love to just take a trip to space, get stranded and just spend a couple of years just like honing in my skills and doing all the training packs and stuff like that and come back and just be a complete legend at the game. So, And everyone else has moved on to Rocket League 5. Exactly. Like, oh no. Yeah. So, for those of you listening to the podcast, you may not have heard it. So, so Rocket League is a game. So, it's sort of a game of football played on a big, played in a big arena. But you are driving cars and you are kicking the ball around the field and trying to score by driving into it with your car. Is that a fair? Kind of yeah, assessment? yeah, yeah. Just the yeah, the ball is massive. It's probably like twice the height of your car as well. So it's not like a little industry standard football. It's just a massive thing. So it's basically a driving physics game, isn't it? Ultimately. Pretty much. Um, and plus the thing is with the boost and everything, you can fly around as well. So you can do like crazy aerial shots and pass the people up in the air and fly around, which gives it a completely different depth. Because if it was just a game where you are just driving around and just hitting a ball, I don't think it would have done as well as it did today. It's just the fact that you can drive up on the walls and jump off and then start doing crazy aerial flips to smash the ball into the goal. Like I think that's why everyone loves it so much because you can pull just some of the most amazing moves are so impressive you know that really has like, brings so much more to the table as well it's also got that element of like mario kart kind of battle mode to it as well yeah. but without the really unfair weapons and things like exactly. that exactly so. well they did release a new game mode called rumble a few months back where every 10 seconds you get a power up like you get this big punching glove or a boot to kick people or you can switch positions or you can like turn on just this big like typhoon or you can freeze the ball and stuff like that so that's super fun it's completely different but super fun so i suppose my question to you i haven't played rocket league for a while i have played it with my brother online and it was great fun because it it, it it's a well-polished game but at the same time it doesn't seem to take itself too seriously you know yep. compared to fifa for instance i'm wondering you know what's your take on the community and the people that you play with online you know, there's questions over FIFA and the kind of toxic community there. Yeah. Do you see that with Rocket League at all? Well, the thing with Rocket League is that, so like FIFA and CS and other games, you know, you have your normal standard matches, but you also have ranked matches, right? And everyone knows competitive matches is mainly where all the toxicity comes out of, right? Because that is where people just start flipping out of their teammates and stuff like that. The thing with Rocket League, because, you know, it is cross-platform, you know, on PlayStation and Xbox and stuff like that, and... Um, PC, of course. Um, not that many people really use a microphone. And because it's on console, it takes forever to type. So it's very hard to be toxic in it. Sure, there's one or two players that, like, you accidentally let your goal in in the first 10 seconds and they'll ask to forfeit. And if you don't forfeit, they'll just stay there and spin in circles for the entire match. But generally, I feel it's the least toxic game I've played. You're talking there about the very competitive level. I mean, is it a game that you can be really skilled at and as a team you can become really good at it as like a competitive game sport or is it like a multiplayer party sort of fun? Okay, so the thing with Rocket League is that its learning curve is super steep, right? You know, you just want to sit down and play a party game. It's definitely the wrong one to pick because as soon as someone grabs the controller or let's say they see someone playing the game that has played for a while 
and they just go like oh that makes it look easy like let me play they're just like oh crap i have no idea what i'm doing because like you really have to get used to controlling the car and going into the ball and you know doing camera settings and stuff like that so although this is a super fun party game when people start getting into it there are people that because the thing is you have you know you have 1v1 duels you have 2v2 and 3v3 uh, for competitive so when teams get together and you know really pay attention to their rotations and being like okay you know i'm in goal right now you're player two so you're you know out in the outfield where the other one's up in front and you know again you have to get really good at flying the car up and you know using your boost and doing aerials and just like predicting where the ball is going to go off the bounce because it's so physics based there's definitely it's super super competitive and so you know there are people that are just insane at the game and actually funny enough you asked that the uh, rlcs so the rocket league championship series is playing tonight i think in about six hours it starts So the Potato series that you work on is obviously very focused on a single player experience. For a small studio like Daylight, do you guys have a desire to do like a multiplayer game? And is, you know, is there, I've written here, I've written here is there scope for multi-potato? Um, yeah. <laughs> do, you, I mean, do you think like long time in the future, I'm not asking you to give away any designs, but I mean, is there is there a passion within your team to say like one time we'd really like to do a multiplayer game? Or are you very much focusing on the single player experience as a studio? Well, I mean, we've always wanted to do multiplayer because, as I said, you know, since we come from a mobile background, we made, you know, free-to-play games and stuff like that. And I think the first game that we did had something like one million downloads or something like that. And they're all very heavily multiplayer games. You know, they're all playing online and stuff like that. And with Holy Potatoes, we really do want to make the multiplayer. With a weapon shop, I don't think it's even possible. I think maybe the only thing you could do is be able to check out other people's shops and maybe, like, ask you know maybe give them a contract like hey could you make me this weapon because your shop is better than mine or whatnot um but for we're in space actually what we're thinking of doing which ties back to what we were talking about earlier when we were talking about the nintendo switch and the exclusive bit about it is that we really what we want to do is we want to make multiplayer an exclusive for the nintendo switch for we're in space so what will happen is that you know you have your normal playthrough and stuff like that in your ship but you also have multiplayer mode where you can either play online or locally and you can you know battle against your friends so you pick a ship you pick your weapons you pick your engineers and then you just start blasting each other so we're definitely thinking about doing that for what the hell i don't think we're going to be able to do anything with multiplayer and it's it's going to be much closer to a weapon shop in regards of you know you're managing your shop or in here you're kind of managing a restaurant kind of thing in hell and cooking up you know recipes but for the future you know i mean i i'm always trying to push multiplayer because i just love the fact of getting just all these potatoes fighting against each other or whatever playing with one another for the nintendo switch version of where in space we're definitely going to be trying to put multiplayer into it and then hopefully in the future we can do more multiplayer games because i just think it would be so much fun to play with friends so moving on to your final choice, you've picked a game which actually isn't even released. Um, you're, yeah. You said you're hoping to avoid being stranded until it's released. Uh, you've chosen high-tech racing sim Gran Turismo Sport. Uh, 
I mean, you must have a lot of confidence in the series, picking a game <laughs> that's not even out for your for your top five games of all time. <laughs> you must be so hyped. Well, actually, this is the only racing simulator I've really ever played, besides, I think, the F1 racing simulator and maybe a couple in the arcades. But this one just feels so good. And I remember, I think the first one I played was GT2 or 3, which was back on the PlayStation 2 or whatever. And I just remember I completely forgot about the series for ages. And then out of nowhere, I think the last one I played was GT5 Prologue, which came after GT5. And I just, the increase in graphics is so amazing. And just like, due to the fact that it has a whole storyline mode to it, and the fact that, you know, you can sit there and tweak your cars to no end, I think it would be just a perfect fit. You know, if you have that many years, you know, I'd come back, I could probably become a mechanic or something just because I know how to tweak cars so well after so long. <laughs> but yeah, and that's the thing. The reason why I picked the latest one, Sport, that's not out yet, is because I haven't played 6 yet. And I'm, I'm just assuming that since 5 was so good, and 6 was probably amazing, I just haven't been able to pick it up yet because there are so many games that have been coming out. Sport must just be so amazing because it's on the PlayStation 4 as well. You know, if I can bring a PlayStation 4 up with me, I'd bring that game with me. Well, the thing with Gran Turismo is that just like the physics engine in it, in it is so amazing. Um, I just remember, though, that the AI in the previous games wasn't the best. And a lot of people did have a lot of comments on the AI just being ridiculous. Like no one in real life would drive like that. Like they have no regards for space for one another. They're just crashing into each other or you just get rear-ended. And like you have like races that are supposed to last, what, like 24 hours in game, which is I'm not too sure how long in real life because I, I haven't been crazy enough to do 24-hour races. But, you know, you could just do the whole race for that long and you're getting to the last lap and then one of the AI behind you just smashes you out the way and you end up being last. I'm excited to see what they're going to do about the AI in the most recent one. I have heard that other games, like I think it was Forza and Drive Club or something, I think their AI was top-notch or at least not as critiqued as in the GT series. So I'm excited to see kind of like how they've, evolved and kind of taken the player's feedback and what they've done to the AI. Because I remember years and years ago, I played a Formula One game on the Amiga. Yep. Uh, and that allowed you to have like a, a little slider about how realistic do you want it to be in terms of oh, how right. many yeah, laps yeah. you have to do. And yeah. so you could actually, if you wanted to, there was some, you could do 60 to 90 laps of them. You know, so as you were effectively spending as long in the race as the real as race would take. Race. Yeah, exactly. And, and are exactly. you saying they can do, you can do that in Gran Turismo as well? From the prologue, there were endurance races where you're just driving for so long. So one of my favorite racetracks, the German one, that track is so amazing. And in uh, GT5, I remember they had an endurance race where I think you're going through like like a full weather cycle and full day cycle. And I just remember it was just so beautiful and like, but it just took so long. I don't think I ever finished it. If I was stranded in space, at least I'd have enough time to finish that race, you know. <laughs> so are you a are you very much a kind of simulation guy when you come to to Grand Turismo? Do you have like the force feedback steering wheel and the pedals? Yeah, yeah. I I definitely had it for a prologue. I had the steering wheel, which. It's a completely different game again. Like it feels so amazing with it, but I don't mind playing with the controller. I think it's a lot easier to drift with the controller, which I also like doing quite a bit. What I love about that game is just how realistic it is. And like you're going through it, you don't feel like you're going that fast, but then you look at your speedometer and you're going at like maybe 160 miles an hour and you're taking a turn at 90 miles an hour. And if you put that into a real world perspective, if you take a turn at 90 miles an hour, you're not going to be that calm you know so what i like about it is that you really have to pay attention to stuff like that and even though you feel like you're going slow you're actually going insanely fast and 
you know, you have to be like, okay, I got to break before the turn. I got to take a good line at the turn. And I, you know, I want to go in slow, come out fast and, you know, go from out in out. And, you know, that's just really fun for me. It's just this whole, like, even you're driving, but you're kind of, you have a strategy in your head on what you can or can't do. And, you know, the fact that you can tweak your cars is really nice. And, you know, you can upgrade your cars and kind of sit there and be like, okay, what am I going to do to my drivetrain? Like, I want to make my gears longer or shorter, and that will affect either my acceleration or my top speed. And you could go into a race and you're like, okay, here I have to have, you know, long gears. Whereas where I'm in the other race, I can afford to have shorter gears and I don't know, it's just great. You could tweak it so much. Like, how could you not play that game for two years? You know what I mean? Talking about simulation, I mean, yeah. you've got a bit of a mix of games there between what I'd call as something that take, takes over your life or in, yeah. in, in a way mimics life. So, for instance, World of Warcraft, quite often you'd log in and you'd say to your friend, where are you? Oh, I'm fishing, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then, you know, Diablo 2, again, you know, it's got this replayability. You can take it very yeah. seriously with your friends. Yeah. But then you've got some fun stuff like Point Blank 2 and Rocket League, which is more... I mean, although Rocket League's competitive, it is a fun, yeah. it's, it's a game about fun. Yeah, like more arcade kind of game. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you've got Gran Turismo, which is, again, like this hyper-realistic thing that it's become. Yeah. It's almost like there's been an evolution of games, hasn't there? You know, the, the first games were all about, you know, put a coin in, you got three lives. Yeah. And then over time now, we've seen this really, what I think is quite a bizarre kind of movement of people buying simulation games like, goat simulator euro truck driver yeah and, <laughs> and, yeah, and in a way later and stuff yeah and with holy potatoes weapon shop you know yeah. i was saying to chris like you know it's like having a job pretty much so, <laughs> i mean do you do you have any insight in into why people have moved that way is it just simply escapism escaping but you're escaping yeah. to what you know or exactly what? yeah i think i think it's more just like how do i even explain this like an extension of your life with a game like world of warcraft sure you do a lot of things in there that are like real world things right you can learn first aid you can learn blacksmithing you can learn cooking you can learn fishing and herbalism you know you're just going out picking up herbs and making concoctions and stuff like that the thing is people find that familiar right they're like oh yeah i've cooked roast before maybe i can do it in game as well the thing with that is that it's just in a completely different universe that you're taken out of your everyday life and put into somewhere that looks completely alien, yet feels familiar. You're this big cow that's standing up on its hind legs, fighting pigs, but you know, you're going fishing and picking flowers. So I think that dichotomy like really speaks out and people find that interesting. And it, although it takes you out of real life, it also just feels homey and feels comfortable because you're like i've done these things before except for fighting pigs of course but everything else you've done before kind of thing yeah it's just bizarre that somebody you could i could imagine a world of warcraft player someone saying hey do you want to come out fishing no yeah, i've got to exactly. fishing in game yeah, exactly and just with other games as well you know with simulators like gran turismo it's just like i think one thing that you know is appealing to people People love working on their cars and stuff, but you're limited to the car you have. Or, you know, then you go to meetups and you see other people's cars and it's great. But the thing with Gran Turismo is that you have every single car imaginable at your disposal. And because the physics engine is so high end and the attention to detail from the developers is so high end, 
that you can sit there and tweak on these cars and feel like you're really doing it or you feel like if i went and found uh, i don't know like some car that you're working on in game you're just like oh crap it's so close to what i was doing in game that it makes them feel like it's again an extension of real life and kind of if you don't have the resources to go out and do all the things you want to do why not pick up a game or a simulation game where you can just do them in the comfort of your own home so i think that's also what's really appealing about these kind of games that it's just like it doesn't it's not just fantasy like it takes you away of the real world which is also a great thing by the way you know a lot of people have really stressful lives and it's nice to be able to go home and you know sit down and relax but at the same time you can also do real world things in game even though they're reskinned to look completely fantasy kind of stuff okay so we're coming to the end of this podcast thank you very much to ivan we have uh, some keys to give away for Holy Potatoes, a weapon shop, and Holy Potatoes were in space. But before we do that, I'm going to announce the winners of the competition on our last podcast. We're a free keys giveaway for James Buckle's excellent indie gravity thrust game, Captain Kaon. Uh, and the winners this time were uh, Ewan McLaren, Alec Turner, and Frank87. Uh, Ewan McLaren gave us his top five uh, eclectic mix here. Combat on the Atari 2600, Ghostbusters on the Commodore 64, Warcraft 2, Rome 2, Total War, and Skyrim, which we obviously talked about quite a bit on that podcast. Uh, Alec Turner chose Lander uh, on the Commodore Pet, Snowball, which is a level 9 text adventure, Quake, Portal, and, funnily enough, Warcraft. Uh, and Frank NC7 sent us his list of uh, Scrabble, Minecraft, Unreal Tournament, The Witcher 3, and Wasteland 2. So excellent choices there from our stranded commanders. Uh, so our competition this time for the two Holy Potatoes games is we've talked a bit about simulation and a bit about taking a job and turning it into a game. We would like you to send us your suggestions for either your job uh, and how it would become a game simulation or a really unusual job that you could imagine being turned uh, into a game simulation. You can send your competition entries to info at laveradio.com. You can send us your entries on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Lave Radio. You can even find us on Twitter. We are at Lave Radio, twitch.tv forward slash Lave Radio. I'm Chris Jarvis. You can catch my streams on twitch.tv forward slash Hold My Kidney. Uh, so thank you very much, Ivan, for joining us today. Guys, thank you so much for having me, man. This is super fun. And I hope people listening to this podcast will go and check out the Holy Potato series uh, and see the, the wonderful art style and the wonderful animation and, and the fantastic writing for themselves. Uh, so thank you very much, Ivan, and thank you, John, for joining me. Remote Outpost Games is a Lave Radio podcast with sound production and editing by RadioTheatreWorkshop.com. Your hosts were Christopher Jarvis and John Stabler, and the music was by PurplePlanet.com. Mm-hmm.